We're going to start with Irvine. But uh, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So in that respect, we also want to be the most faithful congregation in the world. Why? Because we're challenging other congregations to a faith off? No. Uh, Because that's what is required of all believers. To read the word, to live according to it. And, uh, and to tell other people about what the Lord has revealed to you by the power of the Ruach HaKodesh when you just simply took the time to have a cup of coffee, to sit down, to read the word, and he's going to reveal his truth to you. And it may not be truth that has never been revealed in the history. No, he's just going to reveal his word to you. But it'll be brand new to you. And when he does, he'll also start preparing people People that may be in your midst, even now, he'll start preparing people and start leading them across your path. So that as he's filling you with the truth of his word, so now he'll give you opportunities to pour that out into the lives of other people. And that's who we are. That's why we exist in the world, you know. There's a guy who sold not far from here, sold millions of copies of a book about your purpose in life. I'm going to tell you right now for free, that is your purpose in life, to know the Lord, to seek him. And to share that with other people. You got that free of charge right here. Amen. Let's turn to Mark chapter 1. Mel Andrews is, uh, is, is a, an artist. I don't know if you were here. I believe it's Mel, right? Is an artist. And if you were here for the uh, service that we had for Holocaust Remembrance, while the dance was going on, while the drama was going on, he was there and he was... Uh, he was creating art. And when that was over, we didn't see what he was doing. We couldn't see really what was happening. But when the production was over, then he turned around and then here's this, here's this artwork. And I've been a bit of an art speculator myself and have come to appreciate uh, both uh, the creative process and also the value of fine art. And... One thing I know about art is that, you know, there's several different mediums. Some people use computers in order to create art. Uh, I'm a musician and and a songwriter, and so I also use that in order to create art. But in terms of visual art and things that we think of as art when we go to a museum, you know, there's all different types of art. There's cubist art, right? Uh, There's art that Calder made, which was, you know, these huge mobiles and, and, you know, that would hang in the air. And... uh, uh, there's different, uh, you know, Jackson Pollock had a type of art that I feel that even my son Asher could do. And, you know, it was just things splattered onto a piece of paper and, and wow, millions. And, and I know I'm belittling the, the form, obviously, but, but the idea is, is that for different types of art, you use different types of, of, of tools. Some guys use a palette knife. Other people use a brush. With Monet, he... Uh, he, uh, you know, used little smudgy streaks that, that if you looked up close to it, you say, I don't get it. But then you step far away from it and you say, oh, wow, that's, that's really amazing. How beautiful and what the picture is, you know. And then other guys are very fine artists, you know, the sort of European masterpiece guys and the realists. Picasso was perhaps my favorite artist. And part, partially because... He used so many different mediums and, and over the course of his life, 
his artwork took on different shapes and forms. This happens with a lot of artists as they grow or develop and branch into other things. But, but with Picasso, there's such distinct periods of, of his artwork. And, you know, the Bible has one author, the Lord. It is, it's why we call it the Word of God. We don't call it men's opinion of God. Although there's several different, I think, 40-some-odd authors who wrote the different books of the Bible, but it was not them. If you were to ask any of these men whose names like Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, or you go back and you ask, uh, you know, guys like Samuel Ezekiel, Daniel, you say, are these your words? And they say, no, this is, this is, none of this is me. All of this is the Lord speaking through me. And just as an artist would pick up one brush in order to draw a fine stroke, but then put it down in order to pick up a larger brush in order to strike a broad stroke, so the Lord is picking up people as you would pick up brushes. So that even though men from all walks of life, kings are speaking at one point, cupbearers to kings are speaking at another point, you have shepherds who are speaking, you have prophets who are speaking, you have one guy who says, hey, I wasn't even part of the company of prophets, I was just a shepherd previous to this, and now here I am prophesying before the Lord. People of all different sections of society the Lord is using in order to consistently proclaim one consistent truth from Bereshit, from Genesis all the way to the Revelation. The chain is unbroken with respect to what is it that the Lord is trying to communicate and yet he communicates it through so many different people. Still not their words. Yeah, they have character and it is definitely the character of the brush but nonetheless it is completely the word of the Lord. Does this make sense? Because what you have here in the Brit Hadashah, in Hebrew, the the New Covenant, what you have here are you have at least the first four books are four different people's accounts, basically, of the life of Yeshua. And each of them has a different characteristic. So we just entered, uh, we just exited Matthew. And Matthew, some would argue, is one of the more Jewish, you know, a lot of the ideas are Jewish. Uh, of course, they're all Jews who were writing the book, but, but, but he seems to sort of focus on the Jewishness of the Messiah. John's going to come, and he's considered to be the Isaiah of the Brit Hadashah. He's the one who's speaking prophetically, so he speaks of, of the deity of the Messiah. And he continues to nail and to drive home uh, uh, the concept of, 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 of the Lord and in, 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 in the deity of the Messiah. And he even projects, and he's the one who also wrote the book of the Revelation. So he's talking about the day of the Lord and the end is near and all of this. Luke was a physician. So the detail in Luke is very pronounced. At the same time, Luke really concentrates on three ideas. One of them is knowing, living, and doing the word of the Lord. And so he continues to hammer home to his audience. And we'll be in Luke next, so, you know, we're going to get there eventually. But he continues to hammer home to his audience these ideas. 
that if you are truly a follower, then you're not just simply one who comes. You're not just simply one who comes to the Lord and listens. But you're one who comes to the Lord, hears the word of the Lord, and then commits themselves to live out what has been revealed to them. And Mark treats Yeshua as the son of God. Whereas John begins his gospel with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And in verse 14, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. What is he saying? He's talking about the deity of the Messiah, which is essential to understanding who is the Messiah. But Mark is talking about the Son of God, and in the respect of the Son of God, he's talking from sort of the lens of Isaiah 53, which is the suffering servant, sort of a beast of burden, as it were, one who came to bear our iniquities. And so how do you treat your beast of burden? Well, I mean, it's just, you just kind of move, he moves quickly through the Gospels. Stuff that other gospel writers will take whole chapters in order to lay out. He's covering several of these things even within one chapter. So this morning, you know, we're in for sort of a, ooh, let's get up and run. Because Mark considers him the suffering servant. And so therefore he treats the narrative in the same way. It's sort of a beast of burden. And he's quickly moving through the gospel. He's not taking time to cover the detail. He's just moving straight into the facts of the story. And so his ends a little sooner than others. Mark begins his gospel like this. John the Baptist prepares the way, or in the Hebrew understanding, Yochanan the immerser. It says, in the beginning of the gospel of Yeshua the Messiah, the Son of God, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Matthew, in his gospel, in chapter 11, verse 14 There is a discussion among Yeshua and his disciples about who do you think that John, Yochanan, the immerser, the Baptist, as they call him, who do people say that he is? And then he goes on to make a statement to say, if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. He himself was not Elijah, come back from the dead, but he operated in the role of Elijah in that it was presented, that uh, it it was put forth that Elijah would come and would herald the Messiah. And what he's saying is, if you'll accept it, that's John. That is that is the work that John was doing. Malachi. Chapter 3, verse 1 says this, See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And then the Lord will seek, uh, and then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
the messenger of the covenant you desire. You see, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. There's a couple of ideas here. Number one, the Lord says, I will send my messenger ahead, and he's going to say, clear the way, which is exactly what John was saying, okay? Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Did you know that the Lord wants to do something in your life? Did you know that the Lord wants to do something in our midst through this congregation? And yet, in many ways, we resist what it is he wants to do in our lives. And so it's important that we seek him and we seek his righteousness and we get our lives straight. We get our lives and ourselves aligned with his word so that when he wants to use us in such a way, we're not going against him, but rather we're going with him. And this is the message of John the Baptist. Repent. Get back to the word. Get back to the rudiments of the faith. And then when Messiah comes, you'll be ready. You'll see who he is. You'll understand who he is. And you won't be already working against him, but you'll be prepared to move with him. So number one, we see that a messenger is coming from Malachi's words. He'll clear the way before me. And then the Lord that you seek will suddenly come to his temple. There were times when Yeshua is standing right in front of the religious leaders of his day. And they said, hey, tell us plainly if you're the Messiah. And he goes, I already have told you by the works that I do. And that they, hey, listen, if you were really experts in my word and you saw the things that I'm doing, then you would have no other answer but to say this is obviously the Messiah so get yourself right and then you'll see him and not only that he says but he's the messenger of the covenant that you desire well we're the Jewish people don't we already have a covenant isn't that already worth desiring and yet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 31 through 34 the Lord says this look the days are coming This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, this one will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors. When I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, even though I had married them. The Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them, write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least until the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. This is a covenant worth looking forward to. And what Malachi is saying is, listen, hey, listen, my messenger's going to come and he's going to come before me. And you're going to get your life straight. And then the Messiah will come. And when the Messiah comes, because you have listened to the words of the messenger, you'll see him for who he is. And not only that, but he will be the messenger of the covenant that you desire. Which covenant is this? The Brit Hadashah, the new covenant of which we're reading from even now. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Look, 
I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. So now we understand that the messenger who is to come is also Elijah the prophet, as it were. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he'll turn the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. So when Elijah who was to come, that is John, Yochanan, the immerser, comes. And he's like, make straight your paths. The Messiah is coming. What he's trying to do is he's trying to get people in line with God's word, which is exactly what I'm trying to do here. The purpose of this congregation is to get you in line with the Lord's word, to read it. To not just rely on an expert to tell you what the word is. But so that when somebody comes and says, I speak on behalf of the Lord. You can say, okay. Show me. And then you can weigh what they say to see whether or not that is the word of the Lord or not. Because of your knowledge. Because who's going to test the teacher? So therefore we would all be accountable to each other by virtue of our knowledge of the word. And you know, Deuteronomy 6, 6, and 7 said something with respect to this idea of turning the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now I have four children. Four. It's a lot of them. One of them is here, played guitar with us today. So I have four children. It's important for me to know That if I do anything in my children's life, that the most important thing that I teach them is not what I know about the music business, although that's been my trade for so many years, but rather what it is that I know about the Lord, because at the end of the day, anything else we could teach them pales in comparison to the importance of knowing the Lord and knowing how to live a life which pleases the Lord and seeking the Lord. Whether or not they go into ministry as an occupation is arbitrary. The Lord has a plan for each one of us and he has a plan for each of my children and he hasn't revealed that plan to me. He's only revealed to me my responsibility to my children which is to teach them the word of the Lord and to teach them how to seek the Lord. And right after the Shema, which we just recited here earlier, right? Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's Deuteronomy 6. In verses 6 and 7, right after that, he says, these words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. The reason why we're having you to read the Bible is because you're literally doing data entry. You're literally entering in the word of the Lord into your heart, into your mind, so that you can have knowledge of it. And he says, I want this word that I'm giving you today to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. There is a dynamic that the Lord, even back then, is saying, this is important. The community of Israel is not woven together by a musical style. It's not woven together by fashion. The Jewish community is not woven together by the fact that whether or not you like matzah. 
The Jewish community is woven together by the word of the Lord and the, prophet, the, the promises therein which are given to us as a people. And not only that, but we're also woven into the community of all believers, both Jewish and Gentile, by the word of the Lord. So if you want to raise a good Jewish family, then you have to raise them on the one thing which makes you a good Jewish family, which is that you know, live, and teach the word of the Lord. If you want to raise a good family of just believers in general, that's what you have to do. And the Lord is saying that to the people. This is the word I'm giving you today. But not only that, there's something you have to do with what I've given to you, which is you have to put it in your heart. And then for us to to grow as a community, it's not just that we all do business together and we're the Jewish community. But to grow as a community which honors me, you have to know and teach my word to your children. And you got to teach them from the ground up because they say that you get your values primarily in the first five years of your life. Typically from your mother who spends more time with you than your father. He says, these words that I'm giving you today are to be on your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. And what had happened was, by the time Yochanan comes along, the old Mercer, the people had long since abandoned the word of the Lord. And because of that, generations had grown up who had a Jewish identity, but didn't have any real personal relationship with the Lord through his word. And then... Pretty soon, once you become disengaged, then eventually you become disenfranchised. And most of the Jewish people that I know today are practically atheists. Not that they necessarily war against God, it's just that they don't really consider him. Yeah, they might do Passover because it's a family thing. And they might show up on the high holidays because it's a cultural thing. But primarily, even today, we deal with the Jewish culture, which is basically biblically illiterate. And therefore, you say, where is the power which the Lord manifested among us in years gone by? It's gone. And so we have to be a people who give back to the word of the Lord. Whenever I share the truth of Yeshua, that he is the Messiah with people, I use the word of the Lord to share that. I don't use something which has been concocted, you know, in recent times to try to make it more glamorous or marketable. I just simply go back to the basic word of the Lord and show that this is what the Messiah is supposed to look like. This is who he's supposed to be. This is what he's going to do. Now let's go to the Brit Hadashah and let's read the stories of Yeshua. And they had gotten away from that. And the reason was, just as in the days of Elijah. That's why a man had to come in the power of Elijah. He didn't come in the power of Samuel, who was a pretty powerful guy. He didn't come in the power of Elisha. Or any of the other prophets. Jeremiah. It's like, hey, you know, I'm going to send Jeremiah, my prophet, before me. He came to Elijah because a day in Elijah's life was 
in the days when all of the people had left the Lord and they were worshiping Baal and they were worshiping Ashtaroth. And so it was Elijah who fought those prophets. That is, the Lord fought them, but it was Elijah's willingness to submit to the Lord's plan and you saw great victory. And it turned the hearts of the people, at least for a season, back to the Lord. And that's why John has to come in the spirit of Elijah. Because the culture had arisen in those days, and I would say is present even in our day. Where there was a form of godliness, but people denied the power thereof. By the way, when you read throughout the Brit Hadashah and you get into the epistles, these are marks of the end times. When men would be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And they would cling to a form of godliness, but they would cling to a form of godliness, but they would deny the power thereof. And then the Bible goes on to say, from such men turn away. And I would say you could look at that from two perspectives. One of them is turn away from them, like don't associate with them. But it also means help them turn away and get on the right path. You get on the right path and then all of a sudden you go, whoa, Yeshua, what are you doing standing right there? It starts to clear the way. Make straight the path of him because he's come for a thing to do. Luke 3 verses 1 through 6 says this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor in Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, preaching an immersion of repentance or a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. Baptism, as we think of it in a Christian idea, and believe me, I deal with a lot of Christians because I work for a church as well as a synagogue. It's really kind of a psychotic life I live. (laughs) Schizophrenic is probably the right word. Psychotic is maybe not so. I don't know that schizophrenic is very enduring either, quite frankly. But, But the idea is, there is an idea within the church, and then the Jewish community has an idea of the church with respect to baptism because back in the days of the Spanish Inquisition, right, 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, which is what most Americans think about, the discovery of the Americas in an age of exploration and expansion in the world. Well, at the same time, that's also when the great Inquisition started to happen in Spain. So they started to kill Jewish people at the same year. So many Jewish people jumped on the boats And that's why there's so many what we call crypto-Jews or hidden Jewish people throughout South America. The point that I want to make about that idea is that 
there were many people who were forced into making some kind of profession or confession of belief in Jesus. And they would have these forced baptisms. Oftentimes they'd have them make some kind of profession of faith against their will, but in order to save their lives, they'd baptize them and then kill them. And this idea of baptism in the Christian world is one where this typically a one-time thing that happens in your life. And it's to say, you know, look, I'm, I'm buried just like buried, going under the water as if you're going to bury me, right? Buried in, in, in my sin, but raised to walk in, in newness of life because of what Yeshua or Jesus has done for me. And they think of it as a one-time event, typically right around the time when they pray a prayer, they come to a point where they realize that, that Jesus is the Messiah. <clears throat> And they commit themselves to follow him. And so immediately afterwards, they have this baptism, this immersion. And this is not really what John was doing. Also, it's really ignorant of the idea of the mikveh, which is a Jewish idea. Which is this idea that, that maybe not just once in your life, but maybe several times of your life. There was a group around the Dead Sea region where John was preaching called the Essenes. And these guys, <clears throat> one of the things that they really touted in that day were these ritual immersions, the mikveh. And to do it often, to, to continually being ceremonially, as it were, clean before the Lord. And a mikveh is an interesting thing because it has to be with what they call living water. Water which runs from one place and then runs to another place. Not dead water, which is like a pool. But living water. And so a river is a great source of living water. Later in the Gospels, we'll, we'll see Yeshua is having a, a, a conversation with a woman from Samaria. And there's a well that's there. And he's like, draw me some water from this well. And she's like, how could you, a Jew, be asking me, a Samaritan, for water? He goes, you know what? If you knew who I was, you'd ask me, and I would give you living water. It's different from well water. Living water flows. And she's like, what are you talking about? Where are you going to get living water here? We just have this well here. You see what I'm saying? So a mikveh had to be living water, water which came from one source and then flowed to another source. And it wasn't like this type of Baptism, like we think of today. There was also a type of baptism, which or immersion, which happened in that day when a person who was a Gentile was to, was to convert to Judaism. They also underwent a mikveh. And the idea of it was like this. It was like being immersed into something. Like if you take a piece of white cloth and you immerse it into red dye, and when you pull it out, it takes on the characteristic of the thing that it was immersed in. So when a Gentile was to convert to Judaism, then they would undergo a mikveh and it symbolized the idea of now you're coming up and out of this and now you've taken on the characteristics of this thing which you've been immersed in. And John's baptism was really neither. It was a baptism of repentance. It was a public sign that said, you know what? 
I recognize in some respects that I'm no better in the eyes of God than a Gentile. It's it's a mark of humility and contrition. I've come all of this way to come out to the desert in the place where our people crossed over this river, went through this river to come into the promised land. And not only that, but John was baptizing on what we would call today the Jordanian side, which the Bible calls the other side. So the idea is just like in the days of the Babylonian captivity where we were driven out of the land, but when Solomon dedicated the temple, he says that, hey, when the time comes when you've been driven from this land, if you will turn toward this temple and you will humble yourselves and you will pray towards this temple, not that the temple has any powers, but basically if you will just repent and turn back to the way and you would pray to me, then I'll bring you back into the land. And in essence, if you think of it as performance art, and I'm being very loose with that idea. But if you, if you think of it that way, they're literally going out of the land of Israel. They're turning back to the land of Israel. They're being immersed. And then they're coming back up out of that immersion and coming right back into the land. And people were coming by droves. They were coming out to see this guy, John, doing the thing that he was doing. Does this make sense? He says he went from the vicinity of the Jordan preaching a baptism or an immersion, a mikvah, if you will, for forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make his paths straight. You make his path straight by making your path straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight and rough ways smooth and everyone will see the salvation of God. It's not as if all of Israel had repented and turned from their wicked ways that Yeshua would not have to be killed on a Roman cross. That's not the idea. Yeshua still had to come and do the thing that he had to do. But the idea is this. Make what he has to do straight. Make the road to our atonement straight and level for him. Because that's what he's coming to do. John 1, 19 through 28 says this. This is John's testimony When the Judeans from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? And he did not refuse to answer, but he declared, I'm not the Messiah. What then, they asked him, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Well, then does that mean that what Yeshua said was wrong? No, he's not Elijah. I'm not Elijah, I'm John. But Yeshua said, hey, listen, if you'll accept it, he was the Elijah to come. Because he did the things that Elijah did. But he himself was not Elijah. And so he says, I'm not Elijah. They says, are you the prophet? Not a prophet, but basically, are you the prophet? I mean, is there, they're trying to get the whole thing down. There's got to be a messenger. There's got to be a prophet. There's got to be the Messiah. They're putting it all together. No, he answered. Who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those people that sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. And now they that had been sent from the Pirashim, 
the, the Pharisees. <clears throat> so they asked him, why then do you immerse if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? He said, I immerse with water, John answered them, and someone stands among you. Can you imagine? Yeshua is right there. He's, he's right there. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. And he is the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. We go back to Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Not only did he predict who would come, what that person would do, but also predicted where it would be done, right there in the desert. Isaiah 56, verses 1 and 2. This is what the Lord says. Preserve justice and do what is right. For my salvation, or my Yeshua, is coming soon. And my righteousness will be revealed. Happy is the man who does this. Anyone who maintains this, who keeps the Shabbat without desecrating it, and who keeps his hand from doing any evil. Isaiah 57, verses 12 through 20. I will expose your righteousness and your works. They will not profit you. Remember when the religious leaders come to him, and we'll read it in other gospels, so I won't go into it at length at the moment. But he'll say to them, who are you, brood of vipers? What can you, brood of vipers? I've, I've never seen one. Big ball of snakes. He's exposing your righteousness or lack thereof. And they will not profit you. Isaiah 57, verse 13. When you cry out, let, our, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry all of them off. A breath will take them away, but whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain, healing and peace. He said, build it up, build it up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle from my people's way. For the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this, I live in a high and holy place with the oppressed and the lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the oppressed. For I will not accuse you forever. I will not always be angry. For then the spirit would grow weak before me, even the breath of men which I have made. Because of his sinful greed, I was angry, so I struck him. I was angry and hid, but he went on turning back to the desires of his heart. How often that happens to us, yes? We learn a lesson. We say, man, how faithless was I, and yet we find ourselves sometime later in the midst of another faithful act that we have to be redeemed from or rescued from. He said, I have seen his ways, verse 18, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating words of praise. The Lord says, peace, peace be to the one who is far or near, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the storm-tossed sea, for it cannot be still, and its waters churn up mire and muck. Psalm 85, 13 sums it up well. Righteousness will go before him to prepare the way for his steps. These are the words, and this is the ministry 
of Yochanan, the immerser. It says, John came baptizing in the wilderness, Mark chapter 1, verse 4. And preaching a baptism or an immersion of repentance for the remission of sins. In all the land of Judea, that's a lot of people by the way, and those from Jerusalem went out to him. And all were immersed by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Hey, there was a bit of a revival going on at that time. John's Bible says, Bible, John's Gospel says this in John 1, 28. All this happened in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. As we had mentioned before, it didn't happen on the Israel side of the Jordan, but happened where? Across the Jordan. I've been there, actually, on the Jordanian side. Looked across the river. It's not hard to do. It's more like a stream. It's not very big at all. But the symbolism of why he went there and the humility that had to be taken place to get across that Jordan in order to be baptized by him over there was immense. And so while oftentimes church leaders will think of the Jewish people in the days of Yeshua as if they had all rejected him or that nobody was willing to believe in him, well, that's not true. Because many were being prepared for when Yeshua was to come and when the ministry was to happen in the life of Yeshua. And many believed. At one point he fed 5,000. At another point he fed 4,000. After the resurrection of Yeshua on Shavuot, which we just celebrated last Wednesday, when the Ruach fell upon the people, when the Spirit of God fell upon the people, the people were already ready. They were in the place where they should have been. They were seeking the Lord. They were praying the prayers that they should pray. And the Spirit of God fell. And 3,000 of them believed and were immersed in that day. Which was a different immersion from what John was doing. Which we'll get to when we eventually get there in the scripture. It says, now John was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. I almost wore that outfit today. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you or immerse you in the Holy Spirit, which we saw happening at Shavuot. In what we call Acts chapter 2, or the day of Pentecost, as the church would know it, and yet has mostly forgotten. Camel's hair and a leather belt. Who else wore that outfit? 2 Kings 1, verses 7 through 8. The king asked them, a king had sent out messengers to go ask a question of a guy named Elijah. And some things happened in the midst of that conversation, which are not germane to what we're talking about this morning. The point is, they all came back to the king, or one of them. What sort of man came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? And they replied, a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. And he said, it's Elijah, the Tishbite. 
So when John, Yochanan, the immerser, John the Baptist, when he shows up, not only is he heralding the coming Messiah, the Elijah who was to come, as it were, but he was also wearing Elijah's uniform, the camel hair, the leather belt around his waist. And he's eating something that I don't think you can find in a single restaurant in Orange County. He's eating locusts and wild honey. It's a very interesting diet that he has. I I haven't seen that on the market yet, you know, the locust and wild honey diet. But what's interesting is that everything that he's wearing and everything that he's eating are things that you can get off the land. Which tells you in one sense that he's not on really anybody's payroll. You know what's interesting? It's a good thing sometimes to not be on a payroll. Not to be a renegade believer. Because you want to be right with the Lord and right with the word and you want to be under the authority of a local congregation who can hold you accountable. But at the same time, nobody's going to fire Yochanan the Immerser. He's eating off the land. He's wearing off the land. And some would say, well, I don't know, Deuteronomy 14, 19 says he wasn't kosher. It says all winged insects are unclean for you and they may not be eaten. But then Leviticus 11.21 defines which insects you can eat. And it says this, but you may eat these kinds of winged insects that walk on all fours and have jointed legs above their feet for hopping on the ground. So whereas some Christian preachers I've heard before said Elijah... Uh, John came and he, he wasn't keeping kosher and it's like, well, it's not really true. The things which he was eating were things which were completely legal to eat within the law. So if anybody ever says that, you can bring them back to Leviticus eleven twenty one. Are we tracking here this evening, this morning? I don't even know what day it is. Having so much fun. He says, and he preached, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize with water, or immerse with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Matthew 3.11 says, I immerse you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will immerse you with the Holy Spirit. I like this, and fire. And what do we see on Shavuot in Acts chapter 2? That the Ruach HaKodesh comes down and it lights itself upon the men as if tongues of what? Fire. Now typically fire is thought of as a term of judgment. As is a whirlwind. As is is water. Typically when you look at water, you look at the, the flood of Noah. You look at the water which came over the Egyptians who were pursuing the nation of Israel as they were leaving in the Exodus. But one of the things that the Lord does, and we see it even here in Mark chapter 1, is you start to see a reversal of images. Things that were typically thought of as a judgment now is seen of as a blessing. In the book of the Revelation, you will see that the children of God are standing on what looks like a sea of glass mixed with what? Fire. 
And yet, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fire is there, and yet the children of the Lord are not consumed by the fire. The water is there, and yet they're not drowning in the fire. Now it says, but all of those who did not believe in the name of Yeshua are cast into a what? A lake of fire. Now you have the same water and the same fire, which for the non-believer is a source of judgment, but the believer is walking on the surface of and not being burned nor drowned. So later you'll see Yeshua walking on the what? And we understand this is not just a New Testament story, but it's a, it's, it is rooted deeply in the Tanakh. This is awesome. I don't know about you. This is kind of like mind-blowing stuff. It's blowing some of your minds. I've noticed that some of you are even falling asleep. It's just too much. (laughs) Too much to bear. Too much righteousness in one message. I fall asleep every time I read, uh, I try to do the crossword puzzles because my brain is not used to working. And perhaps that's why we fall asleep in the midst of the message. I don't know. Not speaking to one person except for you, sir. (laughs) I'm just just kidding. Nobody's sleeping. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Shavuot or Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly a sound like that of violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying and tongues of flames of fire that divided appeared to them and rested on each of them. Yes, Yeshua is going to baptize with what? With the Spirit and with fire and it happened. Acts 19 verses 1 through 6. While Apollos was in Corinth... Paul traveled to the interior regions and came to Ephesus. This guy Apollos was a guy who the Bible said was really, really smart. And through his intellect, he had figured out that Yeshua was the Messiah and was going around and preaching that. He himself was not a believer, as it were, just simply intellectually he understood the facts. And so a woman and a man, Priscilla and Aquila, who were friends of Paul, pulled Apollos aside and they explained to him more accurately who was Yeshua. This guy was actually preaching Yeshua and wasn't a believer. They explained to him more accurately and then he believed and then he went on. And about the time that he leaves town, Paul shows up. And he meets a group of people and they said, hey, we believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. And he goes, oh yeah? Well, did you receive the Spirit of God when you believed? What baptism did you receive? And they said, it was the baptism of John. Acts 19, 1 through 16, he says, while Apollos was in Corinth, Apollos moves on, Paul comes in, Paul traveled into the interior regions and came to Ephesus. And he found some disciples And asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Because did you know when you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit? Some people would say, yeah, that means that you have to do this and this and this. Don't believe them. Just know that when you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. No, they told him, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Well, then what baptism were you baptized with? Or what immersion were you immersed with? 
And they said, John's baptism, which was what? A baptism of repentance to lead to forgiveness. Hey, listen, you don't receive salvation by simply cleaning up your life and starting to do good things. You receive salvation when you recognize that you can't be good enough. That's why you need salvation. That's why you need a savior. You can't save yourself. So while Apollos had some of the facts right, these people were literally considering themselves to be believers and yet they had not received the gospel. And Paul goes, well, you would have received the Holy Spirit if you would be a real believer, but obviously there's, that's not here. So what baptism did you receive? John's baptism. We just turned from our wicked ways and we started following God. Hey, listen, man, that ain't salvation, people. Not saying that you shouldn't turn from your wicked ways. If you believe in Yeshua, now with the Spirit of God inside of you, revealing the truth you will start to turn from your wicked ways. But that's not what you have to do in order to receive Yeshua. You understand? And before Yeshua came and died and paid the penalty for our sins and rose from the grave, there was only the baptism of John, which is, hey man, just repent, turn from your ways, start seeking the Lord, and when you do, very soon the Messiah will be here. And so there's a difference. Paul said, well, John baptized the baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him. That's Yeshua. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of Yeshua, the Lord. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began to speak in other languages and to prophesy which was at that time a sign that indeed they had received the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter one, verse nine. And it came to pass in those days that Yeshua of Nazareth, from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized or immersed by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. John saw these things. And then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. These are the words of a father at a son's bar mitzvah, as it were. I'm pleased in you. This is my son. I remember being in Jerusalem with my son Wyatt, and we had some friends of ours, and we prayed over him. We didn't have a bar mitzvah there, you know. We're not... We had the full mitzvah is what we called it at the time. It's just we're going to come together and we're going to pray over you here at the wall. But we did it on bar mitzvah day. And I'll never forget coming up from that prayer saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. I'm not saying this is Yeshua's bar mitzvah. What I'm saying is these are the words of a father who's proud of his son because he's doing the things which the Lord has commanded in whom I am well pleased. This is an also an interesting situation because we believe in what they call, some would call the Trinity. I would probably say more specifically the tri-unity of God, that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
Three persons and yet one. And this is one time in the scripture where you see all three of them in the same place at the same time. You see them all together as one, but you also see them, what, independently. You hear the voice of the Father, you see the Spirit as a dove, and here is the Son standing there dripping with Jordan water. All three together. All three independent. Because there are some people who believe in a thing called modalism. That is that God exists in modes. So he kind of pours himself as the spirit at one point, And then he pours himself as God at another point, And then he pours himself as Yeshua at another point. But if we had more time. And the purpose of this message this morning is to get through Mark chapter 1. And we have a little bit longer to go. But if we had time. We would go through the Tanakh, not the Brit Hadashah, to show you the very same thing in the Hebrew scriptures. And it's not hard to find. The idea of the triunity of God is not just a New Testament thing, but it is a thing which the Lord had been trying to communicate to his people for generations. And for those who were willing, can see it. So here they all three are together. He saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Verse 10, now verse 11. And then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. I like the word drove because when you get to the original language, it's impelled. Now, I'm not going to describe it here this morning, but I can show you what it's like to compel a person. If you've ever watched the show on television, and I know you all do, called Cops, bad boys, what you going to do when they come for you? You can see what it's like when the police decide that they want to compel somebody to go somewhere that that person doesn't want to go. Usually with billy clubs, sticks, maybe a gun pointed at them, get down. I have a man who works for the Justice Department. One time he picked me up at an airport up in uh, Auburn, up around Sacramento, and then we went up to Auburn, California, so I could do a concert event. And I'm driving with this guy who works for the Justice Department, and he trains federal agents. And he says, you know, I'm in the rock and roll business. I said, you are? He goes, yeah. It starts with three knocks on the door, and then get down, get down, get down, get down. That's how you compel a person. But what we want is for people to not be compelled. You see, there was many problems with the Inquisition, not the least of which was it was completely contra to the heart of God and that the Lord loves the Jewish people. And if you don't believe that, you should read Romans 11 again. and Refresh yourself. You can't compel, I can't make people believe. I can't argue or persuade you into the kingdom. So when I'm sharing the truth of the gospel, I'm not, trying to comp- I'm not trying to persuade you to believe in Yeshua. I'm trying to reveal to you the scriptures so that the Holy Spirit working through the word of the Lord will start to reveal that this is truly the truth. Because if I can argue you into the kingdom, some other person, I'm not the smartest guy in the world by any means, somebody else way smarter than me can come and they can argue you back out of the kingdom. What I want to see happen is 
for the truth to be revealed by the Spirit of God so that you would believe the truth. And when you believe the truth as revealed by the Spirit of God through the preaching of men, then that's a truth worth believing. And if you believe that, then you're sealed. And as Yeshua said, nobody can snatch you from my Father's hand. So you're sealed. But not because of my persuasion or the persuasion of any evangelist, as it were, but by the revelation of the Spirit of God when the gospel is preached. Yes, through men, but it's not the men who save people. It's the Lord who saves people. When you place as the object of your faith the one who made atonement for you. This is the mechanics of the gospel. When you believe, you're given the gift of the Holy Spirit, which now reveals the truth and starts to not compel you, that is, force you to do something from the outside, pushing you. It's like, this is a person, I'm pushing this person. But it impels you from the inside, pushing out. This word, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. It's not like Yeshua's like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. But the Spirit goes, oh, you're going. You're going. This is like me and my kids. Get him to go to the doctor. <laughs> no, it's what we want for all of our children. For them to own their faith. And for the Spirit inside of them to impel them to march forth in discipleship. Okay? The Spirit of God drove him into the wilderness or impelled him into the wilderness from the inside. Now there's a conversation that happens in another gospel where John says, hey, listen, I'm not, I shouldn't be baptizing. You should be immersing me. And he says, I have to do these things that the word would be fulfilled. So it's not like Yeshua needed cleansing or they needed filling with the Holy Spirit. But all of these things done as an example to us. And it says, he was there in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered to him, protected him in the midst of it all. It goes into more detail in another gospel. And so when we get there, we'll go into detail. Mark 1.14, and now after John was put into prison, Yeshua came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. It's no longer, hey, make your way straight because one is coming. No, one has come and this is the time where the times are fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And what is the gospel at that point? The God who makes promises can be trusted. The God who makes promises can be trusted. He promised the Elijah to come and he has come. He promised the Messiah and here I am. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Makes sense then. And Yeshua said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. 
As you see, a reversal of ideas where fire at one point was considered to be a thing of judgment. Water at one point is considered to be a thing of judgment. Now you see water for baptism is a good thing. Now you see fire with respect to the Holy Spirit is a good thing. Now at the same time, fishing for men was previously a horrible thing and is now seen as a good thing. Jeremiah 16, 16, punishment of the exile. He says, I'm about to send for, you, uh, for many fishermen, this is the Lord's declaration, and they will fish for them. And then I will send many hunters and they will hunt them down on every mountain and hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. When we go to Mount Arbel, when we travel to Israel, we show there's little caves throughout the rocks and in the clefts there in Mount Arbel where they took hooks, the Babylonians, they took hooks and the Assyrians and they threw them over the top. The Romans did the same thing, throw them over the top of the mountain, hoping that they could skewer men who were hiding in the crests of the rocks. And many of them, they killed that way and they pulled them out, literally fishing for them. Now you take what is previously a negative idea and Yeshua turns it around. You're not going to fish for men with hooks like the Babylonians or the Romans would do. Now you're going to fish with them with nets. And we're going to bring them in. And we're going to sort them out. Habakkuk 1, uh, 1.14 says this. You have made mankind like the fish of the sea. Like marine creatures that have no ruler. I like Luke chapter 5, which is really a better account of the calling of the first disciples. And he says... Luke 5.10, it says, And so were James and John Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. And he said, Do not be afraid, Yeshua told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. A reversal of a previously negative image. Are we still tracking? And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And when he'd gone a little further from there, he saw James and John Uh, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in a boat, mending their nets, and immediately called out, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they went after him. And then they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Shabbat, he entered into the the synagogue, and he taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as of the scribes. We've talked in past about what is the difference between a scribe and a rabbi, and that is that you had scribes, some who were experts in the law. So we think of them as attorneys or, or experts in the law. But then a scribe was also a word which described one who was sort of a seminarian or a yeshiva student who sat underneath a prominent rabbi and they wrote down the words of their rabbi. Hence the word scribe. And they're saying, hey, this guy's got authority. He teaches from a whole other perspective. He's judging whether things are good or bad. And he's a forgiving sins and he's doing things that we've never seen a rabbi do. And that's why they say he teaches as one who has authority. Mark 1, 21 through 22 says this. Oh, I'm sorry. This is Mark 1, 21 through 22. Mark 2, verses 10 through 12. He says, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, pick up your mat and go home. And immediately he got up, picked up his mat and went out in front of everyone. And as a result, they were astonished and they gave glory to God saying, we have never seen anything like this. John 12, 49 through 50 says this, for I have not spoken on my own, but my father himself who sent me, because they're asking, where did he get the authority for this? 
He gave me, uh, he has given me a command as to what I should say and what I should speak. I know that his command is eternal life, so the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Where does he get this authority? He tells them, the Father gave it to me. I like what Daniel says, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I continued watching in night visions, and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory in a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, language should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Where does the Son of Man get his authority? From the Lord. Even Daniel saw it. What's interesting is this. When the Spirit of God manifests itself in languages, why would that be? I believe it's a forerunner to an understanding that every man from every nation, every people, every tongue, and every tribe will be given an opportunity to come to a saving knowledge of Yeshua through the preaching of believers. And I hope you believe that as well. Isaiah 40, 13 and 14, he says, Who was directed the spirit of the Lord or given him his counsel? Who did he consult with? Who gave him understanding or taught him the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Here comes Yeshua, he's in a synagogue and he's teaching and people are blown away by the fact that he's speaking with authority. Speaking with what authority? Authority given to him by the Father. Authority empowered by the Spirit of God. Let me tell you something, when the gospel is preached, it reveals a lot of things. And that's perhaps why a lot of people are afraid to even read the Bible for themselves because of what it reveals in them. Alone there in front of your cup of coffee and you're reading the word and he's revealing to you the you that he sees. And I got to tell you, man, whenever he confronts me with things that he sees that I don't see, I don't think that's a big deal. He's like, I think that's actually maybe the biggest deal in your life. And so we don't want to be confronted with that because when we do, it makes us be humble before the Lord. It makes us bow before the Lord. And you know what? We want to think bigger of ourselves. But it's a healthy thing to see ourselves as the Lord reveals and as he sees. He says, now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. Do you think if they knew that he had an unclean spirit, they would have let him in? I don't think so. But the gospel is preached, and it's preached with power and authority. And that reveals things. And it says, he cried out, saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Yeshua of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know that you are the Holy One of God. We've talked about it earlier, but if there's one thing that the Lord hates, he hates the gospel being preached from worldly mouths. You say, man, I really like Gandhi. I thought he was a great guy, and he has a lot of truth, you know. I think I feel like I get more truth out of him. No, you don't. He's not the gospel. He doesn't have the gospel. Some things he say may be consistent with the gospel, but the only thing which is good is the gospel. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. And the Bible says that even the wicked love their young. 
But that doesn't mean that they're right and that you should follow them. There is a way which seems right unto man. The Bible says the end thereof is the ways of death. There's only one way which leads to life. Yeshua said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. So when you have a demon saying, hey, this is the Son of God. This is the Holy One. This is him right here, people. The first thing he does is shut up. Because we don't need to get godly advice from worldly sources. The Bible says friendship with the world is enmity against God, is warfare against God. He says, I know who you are, Holy One of God. And Yeshua rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him, you know, the, the, the enemy never leaves you quietly. Did you know that? You ever see a person strung out on heroin when they're trying to get out of heroin? That's what it's like when the world is trying to leave you. And the Lord has commanded it out. It never just says, okay, I'll, I'll, see, I'll be quiet. I'll dust when I leave. No, it will convulse you on its way out. But it's still the right thing for the enemy to leave you. And when an unclean person in convulse, uh, sorry, when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and he cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. And then they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even unclean spirits and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region of the Galilee. Don't you think so? And as soon as they had come out of the synagogue in that day, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever. Don't tell our Catholic friends, but the first pope was married. (laughs) Simon's mother, wife's mother, lay sick with a fever, and they told her at once. And so he came and he took her by the hand. He lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. Do you know that you can receive healing from the Lord today? Spiritual healing that would affect you for all eternity. But know the reason why you're being healed and the reason why we exist on this earth is to know the Lord so that we can serve him. And don't think that he's just going to heal you so that he can bless you and make you rich and you can live a life of luxury for the rest of your life. But I'm going to tell you something right now. When you've been healed by the Lord, you want to serve him. And you want to tell the world about it. At evening, when the sun had set, they were brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered together at the door. And then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And they did not allow, he did not allow the demons to speak. Now we know why. Because they knew him. But he doesn't want you to receive the truth of the gospel from a worldly source. An evil source. Why did they come to him at night? Because it was Shabbat. And at night Shabbat ends. And even though they had seen the power of God and they had seen the authority, I don't blame them. They had grown up in a culture that says that you can't do work on Shabbat. And I guarantee at that moment there were murmurings from synagogue leaders. Who is this guy working on the Shabbat? So the sun goes down, Shabbat ends, and then they realize that not just one, but the preaching of the word of the Lord had exposed that many were demon-possessed. 
which is often the case when the truth of the gospel comes in. I work for Greg Laurie, and I've heard him say on many occasions, you know, I went to this church or that church, and I, super mega churches, and I went here and I shared the gospel, and they didn't have Bibles to give to people. They weren't prepared because who knows the last time that they'd ever seen anybody come to the Lord. I shared a very simple message, but it was just the truth of the gospel, unfiltered truth of the gospel, and now we see hundreds of people coming forward, and they're overwhelmed. The word made flesh was in their synagogue in that day preaching the word. And of course it's going to expose sin. And I'm glad that this is a congregation which calls it as the Bible shows it. And doesn't enable you to live in your sin. But hopefully is exposing that so that you can receive the healing which is offered exclusively through Yeshua and yet liberally to anybody who would turn from their sin and believe. Amen? Amen. We're almost done. Now in the morning, having risen a long time before daylight, he went and departed to a solitary place. People say, Steve, when do you read the word? I read it in the morning. Because to me, the best time to prepare for the battle is before the battle. And every day has its own battles, doesn't it? And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him, they said, everybody's looking for you. And he says, yeah, I didn't come to build a mega church. Not that he's not against big assemblies. It's just, I'm not here to build first Yeshua church of Capernaum. 